You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Hello, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening once again. It is Friday the 10th of March and this is a specially extended edition of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. In large part down to the fact that we are continuing our extensive trawl through many of the runners that are going to take centre stage at the festival next week. During the course of the last few days, you've heard from Ben Pauling at, at some length, from Joe Chambers running through the Rich Ritchie runners, from Eddie O'Leary talking about the dozen or 15 horses that Jigginstown would run, from the festival's most successful amateur, Jamie Codd, and from the 13 times champion trainer in Great Britain, Paul Nichols. Today it is the turn of Danny Mullins, who could rattle off three straight off the bat at the Cheltenham Festival. His first three rides are Il Etetant, and he then follows up with Dysart Dynamo and then has Vauban in the champion hurdle later in the afternoon. And of course, he is likely to be on Gallimarceau in the triumph hurdle amongst his other rides. Of course, Flooring Porter, his star horse. And he talks about what sort of shape he's in as he bids to equal the history makers who've won three editions of the Stayers Hurdle. And there is a documentary featuring Danny Mullins, produced by The Tote, that is out now as well, which is well worth watching. We'll also be hearing later in the show from Anthony Bromley, who spins you through all the Munir Swed horses ahead of what promises to be a wonderful week for them if the likes of Ampere Pass and El Fabiolo do what is expected. But first... The 29th of June 2022 may well go down in history as quite an important day in the regulation of Irish horse racing because it was the day that Dara O'Loughlin took over the role as chief executive of the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory uh, Board, which has come under significant scrutiny over the last couple of years, not least on, on this podcast, which has discussed uh, the highs and lows of the IHRB during the course of that time. And Dara joins me now. It's not even been a year, Dara. It's been an eventful one. Uh, what have you made of your time in horse racing so far, having come to it from a completely different background? It's been fascinating, Nick. As you say, I've no background, no experience in horse racing. Uh, so I've come to it fresh. I am a pharmacist originally, and I've worked in pharmacy and hospitals in pharmacies. I've worked in regulation and representation and healthcare regulation primarily. So I coming to horse racing with no experience of the sport or the industry, but a lot of experience of stakeholder management and of regulation and how regulation works, which gives me a different perspective. And luckily, I'm surrounded by subject matter experts and people who are steeped in horse racing and who've all been very, very generous with their experience and their knowledge. So it's been a steep learning curve but I'm climbing it. I wouldn't claim to be anywhere near the top of the learning curve when it comes to horse racing. And I'm hoping, obviously, that people around me are learning from my experience and my perception how I see things. I don't want you to throw your predecessors under the bus unless you want to do so. But what I do want to know from you is immediately where you felt the deficiencies were in the IHRB and where you identified areas for improvement. 
Well, I'm not interested, as you say, in throwing anybody under the bus. What I discovered when I came to the IHRB was a team of fantastically experienced individuals, all of them passionate about horse racing, um, but an organization that wasn't necessarily pulling together in the way that it could, and that certainly wasn't getting its message across in the way that it could. Uh, there's nobody working in the IHRB who isn't dedicated to horse racing. And they all want it to work as well as it can work, and they want their piece of it to work. I think the most important thing is drawing it all together so that it's, there's a coherent, consistent, professional approach to regulation and to making and enforcing the rules to the anti-doping program, and that everybody knows what to expect when the regulator calls. Given that you're from a pharmacy background, was it primarily for, for anti-doping that you were appointed? No, we have a chief veterinary officer who's an expert in anti-doping. The advantage of my pharmacy background is when she presents me with the reports and explains to me what she's found, She at least she doesn't have to explain to me what the drug is and what it's for and why it may have been present or why it may be used. But it's my background in regulation and working in a regulated industry. Uh, pharmacies are very heavily regulated. Pharmacists are regulated and the pharmacy businesses are regulated. They're inspected. There are disciplinary processes and professional proceedings and regulatory proceedings, hearings, that's all common to horse racing. And I've worked in our Health Information and Quality Authority in the past, which regulates hospitals, healthcare institutions, nursing homes, and so on. So it's my experience of regulation more than my experience of medicines that got me the job. I want to take you back to November 2021 and the the John Warwick case, the off-books quote-unquote vet who was treating horses, in, in Ireland and trainers were taking horse boxes in and out to have various treatments. We still don't know what was happening there. And that's November 2021. Are we ever going to find out? Well, the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, or DAFM, as we call them, is the lead investigator on that. And it's funny you call them a quote unquote vet. There's no such thing as a quote unquote vet. You're either a vet or you're not. But we know that the departmental investigation is ongoing they took the lead. We did participate in the inspection of the premises. We took samples from the horses that were there and had those samples analysed and no prohibited substances, as I understand it, turned up in any of those samples. So there were no horses on the premises which had been doped and we can only operate with the evidence that we actually have. As to what the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine will do with the evidence they have and their investigation, it's not for me to speak to that, but it does seem to be dragging on for quite some time. Does that frustrate you, though? Do you think, right, I need I need to present uh, confidence in, in, in Irish racing's cleanliness, and I can't do that while I've got this case hanging over? Well, there are certainly questions to be answered in relation to what was found that day in that inspection. But like I say, all the horses that were present were sampled and those samples were tested and came back clean. So from an IHRB perspective, we can say we did our job that day and we discovered no reason to be concerned about the particular horses that were there. We've read in the media what uh, Mr. Warwick's position is in terms of the substances that were found that shouldn't have been found. And I've seen it reported that he's acknowledged that they shouldn't have been there, but that they were transiting to another country. I don't know. But that's for Daphne to work out. Are you putting pressure on them to find out? I don't think they're going to take pressure from me, Nick. We report to them and not the other way around. As far as uh, this case was concerned, it was my understanding, Dara, that um, when you tested the horses, you returned negative tests for banned at all time substances. So, for example, you didn't find any anabolic steroids. But when you say you found clean samples in all the horses, you found no trace of any medication that was prohibited on on race days as well. Is that is that right? You found no evidence of, of what they may have been given under the care of John Warwick. And it's unusual for the IHRB to make announcements regarding negative tests and but in the aftermath of this because there were so many questions being asked there was an announcement made initially that there were no prohibited at all time substances found and then there was a clarification issued later that there were no prohibited substances found let's talk about the annual review that's just come out for 2021 why did it take so long to come out 
it took a long time to come out and that was frustrating for us. We had it drafted last summer and we were ready to go, but there's a statutory process laid down in law when you're funded by taxpayers' funds. So we have to present our financial statements to our auditor, who is a controller and auditor general. It's a government function. They perform the audit. They provide the audit report at the end of their audit. And at that point, we have to give our report and financial statements to the department for the minister's review. He brings them to government, government notes them, and then they get, as we say, laid before the houses of the Oireachtas. That's our parliament. And it's only at that point that we're permitted to file the accounts with the company's office and release the annual report. That process took until last Thursday. But as soon as we got notification that the report was now available to the houses of the Oireachtas, we released it. We couldn't have got it out an hour earlier than we did. Is that a source of frustration for you? You're, you're somebody who comes from a regulatory background, so you understand how, how these processes can sometimes take a long time. Because um, the, the IHRB is, is accountable to, um, I suppose, to the public purse in Ireland, processes take a long time. Is that frustrating when you are trying to uh, portray a a dynamic and and modern regulatory framework it can be but we have to accept when you're working in a world where government is funding your organization you're working within processes that take as long as they take there's nothing to be gained by getting excessively frustrated but yes for us for the team it is frustrating to have had this report ready to want to put it up as our shop front to show the racing world and the wider world, what the IHRB actually does. And then to have to sit on that report because there's a statutory process unfolding, knowing that at the time it comes out, it'll be that little bit less relevant because it'll look like it's out of date. That's disappointing. It can be frustrating then to be criticised for being so slow to publish a report when we weren't in control of the timelines. But, you know, we're big boys and girls and that's the world we live in. I understood. I want to try and um, intuit from that report where you might be moving as a regulator. And uh, we noticed and we noted on this podcast last week that there was a significant upswing in running and riding inquiries. Do you think that Irish racing has been lax in policing non-triers over the last few years? I wouldn't say that anybody has been lax, but I would say that we are continuing to focus on these issues and to focus on all of the rules to to ensure that the sport is clean from a doping perspective and is run in the spirit of a properly competitive sport and a clean industry because owners, riders, punters and participants all deserve to have a sport where everybody is trying their best and it's a real clean competition. If we have suspicions of sudden improvements in form, or horses that look like they haven't been trying, of course we're going to look into those. That's what's expected of us. Off the back of the the Ronan McNally case, can we expect more um, trainers, owners, jockeys to be investigated retroactively for, for horses that suddenly improve in form? It's the nature of investigations that they're always somewhat retrospective. And where we have suspicions, yes, people can expect those to be investigated. And that case that you've mentioned was a particularly complex case and was a complex investigation. Took a long time to come to hearing. But when it did come to hearing, the committee was extremely clear in their views of what had been happening and in what they described as the deception that had taken place. And they took, as you know, a very dim view of it. We won't take say too much more about that now. There is an appeal lodged. We're in the process of forming a panel and setting a date, and we will have to see where that goes. I suppose I realise that you can't talk about the specifics of that case because it's pending appeal. But but can you talk about the context? I.e., is this a watershed moment in Irish racing? Should everyone now be watching their backs? Anybody who is engaged in behaviour of that nature, in the the nature of the behaviour that was called out in that hearing. I hope we'll be watching their back and we'll be asking themselves whether it's truly worth it because we will be investigating where there is evidence. We will be bringing cases to hearing and we've seen now the kind of penalties that a panel under an independent chairman Mm. is prepared to hand down. And it's an independent panel that has handed down a sentence of 12 years. And again, I'm not going to go into the specifics of the case, but you are in a position to talk about proportionality. 
and the proportionality of a 12-year ban for the offences as laid out. Can you understand why so many people, both sides of the Irish Sea, under two different frameworks of regulation, have raised their eyebrows and gone, 12 years? Is that proportional to what I'm seeing in front of me? And indeed, what I know of regulation in both countries since I started watching horse racing. Can you understand why there's been a, a perplexed reaction to the McNally 12 years? Against a backdrop of penalties of that size not having been handed down before, I can certainly understand that there would be some surprise in the industry. But as the panel said in the decision that they gave, this was an ongoing pattern of deception involving multiple individuals, multiple horses across nearly three dozen races over a period of time. It wasn't a one-off. It was systemic, it was ongoing, and it had been thought through. And that's why the panel took such a dim view of it. Again, these are bans that are handed out by an independent tribunal. We accept that. But as the chief executive of the regulator, does it sit comfortably with you that that ban is three times as long as the ban handed out to Stephen Mahan? It's very difficult to compare an apple with an orange with a banana and say that one penalty is the right penalty and another one isn't. If anything, Stephen Mahan's penalty probably was on the light side rather than the other one being too heavy. But there is no absolute right answer. It is always a question of judgment and the judgment of a panel on the day. It's a little bit like a court. You go to court having committed a particular offence, you're not necessarily going to get a sentence that stands up beside a different sentence handed down to a different individual for a different crime on a different occasion. But you you are able, and I again, I think I think people want to know what you feel as a regulator. You've got significant experience outside the industry. You come in as an outsider. You take an overview. You look at one sentence here. You look at another sentence here, and you think, right, this is my regulatory framework. Are we doing a good job here if this is the punishment for X and this is the punishment for Y? Of course, you can't compare apples with oranges, but you can take an overview and you can take a, a, a personal ethical view of the relativity between these two offences. So I asked you, does it sit comfortably with you that Mahan was a third of McNally? And I've said that because... The McNally matter is under appeal. I can't offer opinions on the penalty on the air now because that's an appeal that still has to be heard. I'm chief executive of the IHRB, which is the organisation that has imposed the penalty that currently stands and is under appeal. It's not for me to criticise or undermine that at this point in the process. Uh, let's, Dara, talk about Homer Scott, who um, no longer holds a licence and voluntarily, uh, under the stewardship of the IHRB, handed in his licence last year. But the details of what was happening at Homer Scott's farm, as documented in articles written in in the Irish Independent by by Paul Kimmage, were were, were pretty horrific. Now, you, you've admitted that this should have been handled in a different way. How should it have been handled? There was a decision taken in the IHRB following the investigate the inspection at that yard um, that it would be better for Mr. Scott no longer to hold a license for training horses. And that occurred. The licensing committee accepted the relinquishment of that license and were satisfied to do so. And that's sort of where the matter finished in the IHRB. It would have been better, we've accepted now, and it certainly is my view, it would have been better if we had published a notice to that effect to say trainer X has relinquished his license following an inspection at his premises in relation to matters discovered in that inspection, whatever the wording might have been, but at least the industry would have seen an inspection took place, matters arose, a license has been relinquished rather than the lack of transparency that occurred, which wasn't deliberate, but which occurred just as a result of a process going through and not being published in the way that a referrals committee decision would be. The licensing committee also has the authority to publish its decisions. And on this occasion, rather than making a deliberate decision not to, just omitted to do so. Why? 
I couldn't say it could have been. I mean, as I say, it was not rather than a deliberate decision. It's not an attempt to cover something up. It was just a failure to reveal. So it wasn't uh, something that was thought through in advance. Oh, gosh, we'll do this quietly. No, it was there's an issue here. We can get the license back. We take the license back. That got done. DAFM had conducted the initial investigation. DAFM had issued the animal health and welfare notice, which is enforceable. We'd gone out and inspected. We identified issues. We've taken back the license. Uh, and it's for DAFM to prosecute the case if the case is to be prosecuted. Now, we understand that they have inspected the premises a number of times since and that things have improved. We don't act on the basis of what's printed in a newspaper report, we can only take action on the basis of what we discover when we conduct an, ins an inspection or an investigation of our own. Newspaper reports aren't evidence of anything other than that somebody wrote a report. What we discovered on the day when we carried out our inspection did leave us thinking that it would be better if the trainer didn't hold a license, and that's what we secured. There was no prosecution, there was no referral, and as a result, there was no visibility of what had happened. And that's where the frustration has arisen. I realise that you can't go on newspaper reports. You've, you've got a job to do. But in that newspaper report, the employee of Mr. Scott alleged that one mare was repeatedly covered with a stallion to the point where she collapsed and then dragged across the yard by a mini digger before being hung from a sling in a failed attempt to save her. As a regulator... I would find it very hard to rest knowing that somebody who'd been the subject of those allegations was still keeping horses on their premises, even if they weren't licensed by the by the IHRB. How do you feel about that? I read the newspaper article that Sunday, of course, as did everybody in the industry, did not like what I was reading. We've been in contact with the department since then. They've told us that they've carried out numerous inspections, um, seven inspections in total at that premises, and that they are working to ensure the appropriate care of the animals there. I have to trust the department when they say that they are working to ensure with the local veterinary officer, the health and welfare of the horses that are there. But nobody who read that article would have been happy with what they were reading. Uh, in, in terms of data that emerges from the IHRB, um, there, there are inconsistencies in what is presented, particularly in terms of, of testing that's taken place. In three different reports uh, into, into anti-doping in Ireland, we've got three different figures, for example, for the, for the amount of tests taken in a, in a single year. How can, we, how can we trust the reports that are, that are being published when you've got three different sets of, of data for, for the, for the same, for the same number, effectively, what should be the same number, 3,315, 300,540 and 3,450 for recorded for the same year, 2000 and 2015. We take great care in the IHRB to ensure that the data that we publish is as accurate as it can be. And we count every sample and every test carefully before we publish figures. You're referring to figures from 2015. I can't stand over them. I don't attempt to stand over them. I have no intention of trying. The IHRB was established as an organization in 2018 for the purposes of regulating horse racing in Ireland. You're talking about figures from 2015 from a predecessor organization. We can't be responsible for those we didn't publish those figures. We only came into being in 2018. So is it better now? Are you doing a better job in Ireland than you were a decade ago or even five years ago or even two years ago? And if so, how? We had an independent review of our anti-doping processes and programme carried out between late 2021 and mid-2022 by Dr. Craig Suan, whose name would be very familiar, former Chief Veterinary Officer at Racing. Victoria. And he concluded that our equine anti-doping program at least matched international best practice and had made significant advances in recent years. He's also made some recommendations in terms of how we can improve it still further. And we are in the process of implementing those recommendations. But we've had an international expert come in. He has scrutinized every document he wanted to scrutinize. 
He has spoken with every member of staff and official that he felt the need to speak to, and he's concluded that we've made great advances in recent years and that at least match international best practice, implying that we exceed it in some places. And we're continuing to develop. So, yeah, I'm happy that we have a good program and that it's going in the right direction. Dara Lachlan, thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. Well, as was the case last Friday, Lydia Hislop is with me today to talk about matters relating to the IHRB. But I wasn't expecting to be granted uh, an audience with Dara Lachlan, and I was pleasantly surprised to get one, Lydia. And um, I thought that was quite interesting. What did you make of it? Well, first of all, I'd say it was a very substantial interview in terms of if you were um, the IHRB, I think you'd be very happy listening to how your chief executive has conducted themselves there. I thought, for example, I thought it was a really good answer when he was talking about what his particular expertise were um, and the fact that he has people around him who he relies upon for the particular understanding of horse racing, whereas he brings a background in regulation to the table. And that kind of team combination to me seems like a, a very sound answer. But I thought there were a number of things that he brought up that were of note during the course of the interview. Where do you want to start? Well, I'd like to start with the way that he tackled my question about running and riding and and a sort of related point as to what the Ronan McNally case might mean as regards Irish racing in the next few years. Yes. So uh, you uh, put to him the uh, significant increase in running and riding inquiries that came out from the 2021 report. And that's what we were discussing last week. Um, and he basically said, welcome that. He, he said, yes, he owned that. Um, we're going to continue to focus on these issues. And he made the point that the sport needs to be clean from in terms of doping and run in the spirit of properly competitive sport and that the uh, IHRB must do what's expected of us. Um, you pressed on whether the Ronan McNally um, case uh, was a watershed moment and obviously we're restricted by the for the fact that the appeal has been lodged there and I do understand that those restrictions I mean particularly from the IHRB's point of view they can't be seen to to prejudice that um, but he but he basically said yes I mean he was um, it, it, there's been a, a lot of doubt expressed about whether this would be a watershed moment or essentially whether it was picking on a little guy uh, just to to, to to phrase it in a, in a loose or general way uh, but he, he, his response to your question on that was that, no, this is a watershed moment, essentially. He said that anybody engaged in that, that kind of behaviour, I hope, will be watching their back because they will be investigated. I thought that was very, very interesting. He is, is pushing back on the idea that, that this is just going to be an anomaly. And essentially, he's suggesting that this is the sign of the future. Uh, I pressed him a little bit on relativity of penalties. And again, it, he didn't back down. No, not at all. And it was interesting to hear that on the Steve Mahan case, he he uh, made the observation that his penalty was actually on a little on the light side rather than being too heavy. I mean, I mean, I've mentioned this before about the um, appeals structure of the IHRB and uh, the the differences between it and the BHA. Uh, and that is that if you look at the makeup of the uh, certainly the appeals body and last time I looked at the referrals uh, committee makeup as in who can sit on it, um, I was able to make this point as well. But at the moment, uh, if you click on that on the HRB website, something I need to sort out, it, it currently just has a typo on there and no no names. But I know that the last time I, I looked at that, people who, who could um, sit on the referrals committee and people who could sit on the appeals body can also work currently actively as race day stewards. And in Britain, uh, following uh, the Quinlan report, um, Christopher Quinlan, then QC, um, there had to be a corridor of air between the race day stewards for the BHA and those people who could sit on the disciplinary panel and the appeals board in uh, the IHRB format. As I understand it, there is an independent chair, but the other two people who would sit on the panel could be derived from race day stewards. And so I think that the Quinlan idea is said to be current best practice. Uh, and just finally, to wrap this up, having heard that, do you feel more or less confident or about the same in the regulation of Irish racing? I feel a little bit more confident, if I'm honest. I liked um, his response to you about Homer Scott, where he conceded that there was a lack of, of transparency. He explained how that 
had happened and you pressed him further but he 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 felt that there was a lack of visibility there and I think that came back to an early answer where he said to you that um he, he felt where the areas of improvement for the IHRB was the organization pulling together or getting the messaging across as uh, better than they currently did or did until uh, he joined. He didn't doubt the experience, you know, the the professionalism uh, and the passion of his team, but he felt there were ways to make a better sort of joined up thinking. And I think something like the Homer Scott case would be an example of that. He also made clear um, where the IHAB stand vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Irish government and uh, the fact that they are obviously the junior partner in, in that relationship between them uh, and the Oroptus and them and DAFM, um, the Department of Agri Agriculture, Food and the Marine. He also drew a line in the sand between the RHRB and his predecessor organisation, pointing out that those 2015, three different figures uh, for testing, which we pointed out this time last week, that that was a, a, pre a predecessor organisation and we can't be held responsible for those figures. So he's drawn a line in the sand there and he's also set himself some targets um, that he is going to have to achieve. He mentioned Dr. Craig Sawan and said that uh, that that he had concluded that the IHRB's dope testing um, and doping practices at least matched international best practice. So he made the interpretation that that implies that in some areas it exceeds best practice. He didn't talk about when he was going to get some of those recommendations actually activated. I realise there'll be cost implications and maybe some practical implications, but he didn't go on to, to, to talk about that. So I suppose he's now set, set, him, set the IHRB some um, very clear targets in terms of transparency, in terms of acting robustly, and it sounds very convincing, and I am more encouraged at this stage, but obviously deeds are more important than words. Shall we press on to what's happening on the race course and um, continue uh, our extensive guide to next week's festival? We better start, Lydia, by talking about Marie's Rock. Vibes seem to be suggesting that certainly the owners, at any rate, are leaning towards the, the mayor's race, particularly given the likely ground which has now gone soft after another dump of nasty rainy sleety cold mush basically yes it's been the forecast has been so unsettled i think it has been difficult for connections who might have a potential distance requirements depending on the ground to be absolutely sure about where they are going i felt the vibes from midland park racing were that they wanted uh, to go to the mayor's hurdle for Mary's Rock to defend her her title there, rather than try three miles for the first time. Um, I can I, I I prefer that reasoning personally. This is a horse that has been very very keen in the past, and while she appears to be more tractable, and that certainly seemed to be the case in a steadily run Rel Keel last time, I still think that she's uh, playing within herself. Um, on a, in a known circumstance in, in the Mare's Hurdle. She's been in fabulous form this season. And she does have a count over Epitant from the end of last season at Punchestown, albeit, of course, Epitant had also gone to Aintree in the meantime between Cheltenham and Punchestown and Mary's Rock hadn't. Well, it's one thing trying to get yourself prepared for Cheltenham with a really smart book of rides. It's another when you've been preparing for Cheltenham with a camera pretty much directly in your glare. Uh, that's been the case with Danny Mullins, who's a Tote ambassador for another year and has been the subject of a, of a documentary in the build-up to this year's festival, focusing particularly on an attempt to win the stairs hurdle for the third consecutive year on flooring Porter and emulate Big Bucks and Ingalls Driever, both of whom have won the race three times and Danny's with me now. Danny, how's the documentary turned out? I think it's turned out very well. You know, I think the reaction so far is quite positive and, you know, it was a lot of fun to make it. Uh, something maybe a little bit different that I wouldn't have been used to before. Normally, maybe I, I, I have a chat with someone on the camera before or after a race, but day-to-day -day life, having the, the guys coming around with me and film and all the behind the scenes stuff was something different but fun too yeah you strike me as someone who can probably cope with a distraction or two i i think i'm, I'm able to manage it somewhat but uh we'll let uh, other people be the, the judge of that once they see the documentary so uh, did is there a little bit of you that that quite warms to being a film star uh, I, I think you know people are always slagging me with the model and stuff for tote and all that i think uh, i'm happy enough 
riding racehorses uh, for the moment is something I'm good at and uh, I, I don't think any distractions are anywhere too too much in the near future. I, I know people give you a bit of stick, but it, is it... Tr- are you quite? Are you as laid back as you seem to be, or is this all just a facade for for our benefit? I think I'm quite laid back in normal life, but you know, uh, you see, little bits from JJ Slevin probably hits the nail in the head during the documentary. Put me on a racehorse, and I'm a different beast. Um, you know, I suppose if you're an owner, or a trainer, and you see you know somebody coming out if they haven't got that appetite for success you, you don't really want them on your horse and Cheltenham for you was you know for quite a long time a source of enormous frustration but the corner turned in in pretty in pretty glorious fashion if i go if i go back to the days where you were banging your head against the wall trying to trying to find a winner there what was it actually like being you for those few days you know i was probably so naive when I was young that every year I went there I said no this is going to happen it will happen and you know even when my mother trained her first Cheltenham Festival winner with Martello Tower for Barry Connell who I just lost a job with that previous year you know everyone thought that was probably the sorest defeat but I'd say on the flip side seeing my mother get her first Cheltenham Festival winner was the happiest I'd ever been to be beat and you know i i never doubted that the day would come and to see how much work goes into getting a cheltenham festival winner i look back now and think uh, i was naive probably a bit arrogant thinking yeah this is going to happen and it will happen there's a lot of good guys you know that it doesn't happen for Um, the extraordinary thing about that race the martello tower race was that you might have been, you know, the happiest ever you'd been in defeat to see your mother win the race. Your mother was the saddest person ever in victory to see you lose the race. It was, it was absolutely heartbreaking. That's that's Cheltenham in a nutshell. You know, you're, you, you just don't know what way things are going to go. And, you know, to, to see, you know, those contrasting emotions, it, it's something magical. For all those reasons, Flooring Porter must be a very special horse to you because, again, you kind of got the ride by accident in the first place, but you seem to click with him so well and you seem to get inside his head straight away. He, how much satisfaction has he given you? Uh, he's been a great horse for me. You know, the first year I, I won on him, that feeling of crossing the line, that's something that I go a long way to find something more special than that, even though it was a lockdown Cheltenham. Uh, that you know there's maybe 20 seconds after he crossed the line I was on cloud nine and you know for a horse with you know his reputation uh, of being so quirky for him to give me such big days you know he's always going to be a special horse for me but you know each time he's won in Cheltenham he hasn't won again before he's gone back there so you know, he, he definitely throws his few curveballs at us through the year and the the team, you know, at home, Gavin's done a fantastic job with him. The owners, you know, the, the small syndicate from the, the west of Ireland, they've been just as gracious in defeat as, you know, elated in victory. So it's great to see him perform at that level. You know, they're on RT News last night uh, when the build up to Cheltenham and to see the joy they're getting before they get there it's unbelievable and that's maybe something that racing in this part of the world maybe in the southern hemisphere syndicates are something that's very good but it's really starting to take off in recent years in this part of the world and, and to see syndicates like that competing at the level it's unbelievable and how do you think he is going into this year's race? I think now he's in great shape. You know, he'd been beaten twice this year as he was last year, but he just hadn't really hit the level of form that he had hit last year, even in defeat. So post-Christmas, to hear that he had the setback was you know just a, a roundabout way I was happy that something had came to light for 
for the reason that he wasn't performing to the level I, I would have liked to have seen. So now that he's got over that, I think he's going to be a different horse in Cheltenham, which he's going to need to be to be competitive in what I think is probably a hotter race this year than it has been in recent years. There's a few young guns coming through. But at the same time, Florin Porter, he's got age on his side as well. Most of the horses that come back into the staying hurdle division do it as an eight or nine-year-old. You know, he got in there young and he's still got age on his side. So I still think he can win the race this year. Uh, will he mind if the ground's a bit of a pudding? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, he he's, he's ran on, on soft ground in Ireland. You know, most of the... Most of his his better form is probably in the spring, but even you know the the first year, it was better ground. The next year, a bit more rain came. The day before was it Wednesday last year, where it absolutely downpoured, and Galvin was thinking after that possibly this isn't going to suit him. But you know he he's tough, and you know he can jump and gallop. I I wouldn't worry about ground for him. You're in the luxurious position of riding a bunch of horses particularly on the first day, who are single-figure prices, but there's not going to be quite the scrutiny on them that there are on the horses ridden by Paul Townend. I'm talking about Ile Teton, who's maybe hiding in plain sight in the Supreme, Dysart Dynamo in the Arkle, who a lot of better judges than me fancy for the race, and Vauban, who's just been tipping away quietly for the for the champion hurdle. Who are you most looking forward to riding? I suppose, you know, they're all very good rides, um, you know, by default, the, the first race is going to be the the most exciting. Elated Tom, you know, he beat Facile Vega the last day. Now Facile Vega didn't turn up, and I ran out a very good winner of the race in Leperstown at the Dublin Festival. But I think, uh, yeah, starting off with him, he's a he's a great chance. Barry Connell's horse, Marine National. He's been very good in what he's done so far. He hasn't ran since the Royal Bond and Fairy House. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think starting off with him is great. But, you know, straight away into the article where people are building it up as a match between John Bond and El Fabiolo. And, you know, Dysart Dynamo, if he will accept to listen... I think he's got a big chance in that race. And you're the man to try and to try and make him listen. How much do you need to do that or can you just let him freewheel? He's he's not a horse you can bully or you can't influence him too much or he'll go completely the opposite. So I, I think he's definitely got some Mullins breeding in him somewhere. And uh, I think <laughs> I think if um, if he can settle that bit, I, I'm hoping that in Cheltenham, you've compared to Leopardstown, you know, for the first three furlongs in Leopardstown, you've maybe got one fence, and then you meet the second one away from the stands. Where in Cheltenham, you have four fences in a row, galloping up into what for a horse looks like somewhat of an amphitheater of a crowd and a lot of noise in front of him where hopefully, I know he's so intelligent that he's going to be seeing all that, and I, I think that might just put the brakes on him a little bit to contain him for that first half mile of the race, because if he can get that right, everybody knows how much of an engine he's got. Um, Cham Kylie and Gallimasso look look likely rides for you during the week. I mean, we could go through every single race, but they, they do look likely rides. I just wanted to ask about Gallimasso. Are we rather underplaying the Dublin Racing Festival? And are we overplaying how unlucky Lossy Mouth was? I think I definitely got the rub of the green on Gallimar so that day. But, you know, people are judging the form of the two fillies on when they met at Christmas. But Lossy Mouth had a run previous to that. Gallimar so was having her first run of the year and there was seven lengths between them. I think at the Dublin Festival on an even playing field, there would have been a length between them. I would have been hoping I would have been a length in front still. But I don't think Lossie Mouth is that far ahead of Gallimar. So, 
you know, they're, they're they're closely matched. And even had Paul gone on to my tail the last day, I would have definitely battled for longer. Who knows if I definitely would have beat him. That's just, uh, you know, a flip of a coin on the day. And then you're going looking at Blood Destiny, who's got to give the two of those fillies seven pounds without maybe some of the match practice they've gained at some of those tough festivals through the year in Ireland. All right, so Florian Porter clearly is the is the team captain for Sentimental, uh, but other reasons as well. Um, we don't know exactly what you're going to be riding through the week. We've touched on a few of them. Is there one the obvious one that I'm 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 missing that you're thinking right? If I can get on that, I've got a right chance. I don't think so. <laughs> or do you just leave leave it to Willie? Leave it to Willie and see see what pops up during the week. And you know, Champ Kylie, you mentioned as well. It's an open Ballymore. It'll be yeah. It's there's so many of those rides. You know, it's it's funny. I went into Christmas this year with a great book of rides, and everything went to plan. No horse got beat that should have won. I rode no winner through the Christmas period, and then. Every, because I'd ridden a few good winners before Christmas, everybody said I was flying. Then I go to the Dublin Festival with the exact same book of rides. And, you know, Gallimar so, you know, gets the rub of the green to win a spare ride on Gentleman to Me and 14 to 1 winner on Illa to Tom. And everyone said, oh, you're still flying. But ne- not necessarily, you know, Cheltenham can go either way. You could easily have a great week, ever go to plan and ride no winner. So you take nothing for granted going to Cheltenham as championship racing. All right, that was Danny Mullins. It's always it's always a pleasure to talk to Danny Mullins, Lydia, because he gives plenty. He's very articulate, isn't he? And very interesting to talk to. Um, I liked your asking whether he's as laid back as he comes across in, in real life. I thought that was it. And he gave a very interesting answer to that absolutely you know why would connections uh, want to want to engage somebody who's laid back you have to have an appetite for uh, success I, it was interesting reflecting on uh, his early days at Cheltenham as well and how how he felt that he was a little bit naive or arrogant about this you know happening that a Cheltenham winner will come to me you know I think as uh, riders and trainers go through their careers and I think it probably happens to all of us in life doesn't it you, you reflect on on your thoughts as as a youth and you think well these things you probably felt came quite easily and when you've got experience over time you realize you know just how much work goes into it but I, I find I found his comments very very interesting particularly about Dysite Dynamo and whether he'll be able to um, make that horse more tractable uh, he's certainly an exuberant horse so that will be something for um, Danny to get into his head and I was very interested by his point about Gallimasso vis-a-vis Lossimath with the interference Lossimath st- suffered when Gallimasso beat her in the spring juvenile uh, like Danny I think that the prices the the, the 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 expectation of their performances in the triumph the the antipost prices um, are t- is too wide between them Gallimasso I think should be should be much shorter shorter and it was a, a good reminder that Blood Destiny was going to have to um, deal with a seven-pound mare's allowance, but both of those rivals are going to um, ha- be able to have against him. That the jo- the final jockey lineup in there is going to be interesting, isn't it? Because the, again, the yak on the on the Cheltenham preview circuit, which might have been initially understood misunderstood from a comment made from from David Casey about whether um, Paul Tannen might ride Blood Destiny. I think that might have become. He come in more likely than not. So I'll be I'll be interested to see what actually happens in that in that direction. I think it might be quite hard for um, Paul Tanner to to get off Lottie Mad. And my final thought about all of that is the documentary on Danny Mullins. There's been quite a focus on Willie Mullins in a similar way, hasn't there? Um, the um, mention of horses and trainers being in the news on RTE. I'm just struck by how much more. Um, that horse racing is embraced as part of the general culture and the actual horses rather than betting in Ireland as compared to Britain. I mean, I went to to Dublin this week and there is a massive poster, admittedly from Paddy Power, but it's not focusing on the betting. It's focusing on the Irish-British rivalry um, at the Cheltenham Festival. And then you go through into departures and there's a massive um, 
poster again this time from Ladbrokes but again it's horses that are on this this poster rather than you know um somebody uh holding a betting slip and looking excited uh, I'm just struck by by the difference and I have to say I'm rather envious of it all right we've been catching up with some trainers owners racing managers jockeys with big and important books next week now, this could be the festival. I don't want to tempt fate, Anthony Bromley, but this could be the festival of Manir and Suede, couldn't it? Oh, gosh. Um, no, easy, Tiger. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, just thought, I just thought I'd get you nice and livened up to, to, to kick off, just to, just to really put some pressure on. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, we've got... It, look, we've got a, 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 a stronger team as we've had for many years... Um, oh, alarm's just going off. Um, that, that, that's just to tell you to confirm a few horses for races that you didn't realise they were going to run in, probably. <laughs> yes, like so anyway, right, yeah. You know, it, it's a good... It's, look, we've got a lot of horses in single digits for races this next week, and that's what you're trying to do, and you're trying to plan the season. And if you get you, if you get horses there and they're under 10 to 1, then you've, you've sort of... My job is done. Now the next job's got to be done now. Um, I I know one should go chronologically to make this easy for people, but I I, I want to start with Ampere Pass because every Tom, Dick, and Harry that I run into tells me that this horse is an absolute machine and and is very very quick. Um, he's in the Ballymore. It's going to be a different type of test for him. Is his class just going to counteract any issues as regards stamina? Well, I, I, I've got my sort of slight doubts on stamina because it's been unproven on the racetrack. Um, I mean, he's only run three times in his life. He won a bumper when he was very big back with green thing in France. And then he, he won a, a, a two-mile, extended two-mile two, two-mile three at, uh, at, was it, Nace, Christmas time when they didn't jump many hurdles. And then he's come back to two miles in the Moscow Flyer. Now, I'd love to have seen him run over two and a half in Ireland before he came over here, but um, the last trial in in Ireland, Willie thought was just a bit too tight to Cheltenham. So we're going in a bit, you know, hoping that he gets two mile five up the hill in soft ground. Um, but he, he seems to have a good way of going. They are very very excited about the horses, no doubt. But um, uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, Perhaps he should be in the Supreme, and we may regret it after Wednesday. But it, it, the intention is to go for Ballymore. Um, that's been Willie's plan right since, well, straight after the Moscow Flyer. He sort of pretty much stated he was a stayer, and that's where he's going. And he's sort of pretty much stuck to that sort of line. So um, I hope I hope the decision's the right one. Um, but all the you know all the noises of his preparation have gone well. So fingers crossed. You will have you will have a runner in the Supreme Novices Hurdle. Uh, Dark Raven is a twenty-five to one shot. Too big a price. Uh, yeah, look, he's not a bad horse. He was unbeaten going into the Dublin Festival. Um, son of Malinas um, was ran a bit. Ran a good race at Dublin, um, but you know, can he? How, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to turn it around with Ilete Tomp, who beat him there, um, and probably you know, and, and Fasil Vega who, who flopped, but. But he, he look, he, he deserves a shot at a big race, and um, Daryl rode him there. He ride him again on on Tuesday. He felt he wants a, a you know more of a stamina test than he got at Leopardstown, um, and actually with soft ground first race on Tuesday, two miles. Actually, probably that will probably suit him. But if he could nick a place, that would be good. Uh, Hunter's yarn, of course, was in the Supreme, but you're going to go county with him. I think he might end up being rather shorter than the eight to one he currently is for that race. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, well, uh, uh, he is in the Supreme, he could go there, um, but he is in the county, and, and talking to Willie, that does seem to be the plan. Um, there had been, we were talking about swerving Cheltenham and going sort of duck and diving a bit and going to Easter at Fairy Ice, but that seems to, the nearer we've got to Cheltenham, that's sort of gone by the wayside, um, and Willie likes the idea of the county. I mean, the the slight negative on him is, I mean, his jumping wasn't particularly slick last time. He's got a huge engine, um, but in a small field and listed herd, he got away with this, with sort of a couple of sort of iffy jumps sort of going on all fours. But I am a slight bit worried about 26 runners of the county hurdle, but they obviously think he's got a big engine and they think it's a good shout to go for it. So in, in Willie, we trust, you know? Yeah, well, you can have as many runners as, as you want, but if you've got a stone up your sleeve, it doesn't really matter, does it? 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk about El Fabiolo and how you see the matchup between him and John Bond and indeed Dysart Dynamo, um, about whom we've just heard from Danny Mullins? Well, I mean, I've, I've, I'm a, I've got a lot of respect for Dysart Dynamo. He's been, you know, when he gets on a roll up front, he's he's hard to peg back. Um, and, I, and Danny's a master of, make, of making the running from the front, as we saw with Gentleman de May at, at, at the Dublin Festival. I mean, he, he, he'd he be a worry to me, but he's going to test the jumping on John Bon and on El Fabiolo from, right from the outset. It's a sharp two miles in the Arkle, and we've got to reel him back in, and our gentleman's got to hold up. But, I mean, the, our boy is a big monster of a horse, rather like John Bon, who's a huge horse as well. And, it's it's one of the races of the festival that everyone's very excited about. All the previews are all excited about it, and and you're either in one camp or the other. Um, but there, as I say, there is a third camp with the Dysart Dynamo angle. Um, so what what do you what do you make of the narrative that a fast two miles on the old course round Cheltenham is going to put pressure on El Fabiolo's jumping? Well, he did. He didn't have a problem with the pace at Dublin. They were and they were flying around there. So I, I, don't, I think he's got the engine to cope with it. In fact, I mean, you'd slightly concerned about John Bond going at the pace, um, the way he sort of slightly got taken off his feet at Warwick. So I, I you know, I'm not too worried about that. But it's it's just he just doesn't want to miss a jump, obviously, because those that's, that's the most important thing. But it, it, he's a monster of a horse, and he's potentially, as Daryl keeps saying, he's the, probably the best. One of the very best he sat on in the double green coast, potentially wise, but not has achieved it yet. So, again, so so lightly raced, so inexperienced, but that just means there is probably more potential to come. So, hopefully, um, we we see an exciting horse on uh, on Tuesday. If Blue Lord runs in the Ryanair, is he running in the right race? <laughs> um, well, we've always felt he's. There's <sighs> only one race where he looks like he was, a, you know. A, a, a champion two mile and that was one race at, at Christmas and I don't know I wonder if that race slightly flattered him um, because all the other races looked shouted out that he wants a longer trip um, and he's run a very consistent level all his career I think the two I think the Ryanair is where he should be at um, but I, I can't see us beating Shishkin if he's any in any sort of form that he's in, like if he's come if he turns up in the same form as he was in the Ascot chase I can't see it. we've got the the wherewithal to beat him but um, but if something, if Shishkin doesn't perform for some reason, you know, right, you know, he's going to have a great shout. I think in the champion chases, there's three that I'd be worried about that we might not be able to beat. So, you know, we could be running for fourth place in the champion chase, but we could be running for second place in the Ryanair. Um, and if things fall right, he could win it. You know, All right. I'm happy enough with the trip on, for, for, for Blue Lord. I mean, they keep they keep showing Edward Stone's article last year, and Blue Lord was bang there and just couldn't live with it with Edward Stone up the hill um and you know when I saw think that could happen again if we ran him at two miles I think I think I'm, I'm quite happy to go up in trip all right let's spin through the others very quickly good boy Bobby in the Ultima big price yeah yeah it's dropped dropped down the way soft ground or suit been wanting to run him uh, the last couple of weeks can't could t- the ground's been too firm so I think he'll, he, he could he, he wouldn't be a total surprise if he popped up at 40 to 1 and Bron in the brown advisor is an outsider He'll run. Daryl Ride here. He was what was he? William Mullins, his four thousandth winner um, the other day. Um, look, he, he, he's you know we're tilting a bit at windmills, but he's not the deepest brown advisory, so he'll run. You're going to run tax for Max and call me Lord in the Coral Cup. Uh, call me Lord will run uh, tax for Max. I'd, I'd say he might go County Hurdle. I'm tempted to go more County Hurdle. Although they're talking about the Martin Pipe on the Friday for him, so we'll see. He's going to run somewhere. He'll run one on the handicaps. He's not a bad old tool. Tax for Max. Two in the bumper, fun, 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 and it's for me. Which has the better chance? Um, on on value, on the odds, I think fun, fun, fun's currently about nine to one, and it's for me is nine to two. I think that's. I don't think that should be quite right. I think the mayor, the mayor with the seven pound allowance, has got a festival winning form at Dublin. I think she's she's a, she's got a good shout. I think it's for me slightly false price. He was very impressive that day he won, but he didn't beat a lot. And, and there's loads in the race that are similar. So why should we be, you know, four or five to one and other impressive bumper winners are 12 and 14 to one? There's a bit of hype about him, but he is a lovely horse and we're excited about him and he's huge potential. But, you know, we, we, we're we going in a bit 
not knowing at the moment sort of thing with him. But, I mean, hopefully. I mean, they're two very nice horses. Do you give James de Berlay a spin in the Turners? Yeah, we do. Um, we haven't quite put a finger on why he completely flopped in the tur- in the, at Dublin Festival. Um, possibly, well, there's two, two uh, light sort of trains of thought. Um, he, he gave himself a very hard race in his beginner's chase um, beginning of January. And... Just just ran with the choke out over two mile five in heavy ground and actually went into the empty. He emptied himself a bit. So I think there was an element of him running flat at Dublin. Also, he didn't jump very well at Dublin, but we've treated his stifles since because he was sore after the race and everything. And he's always, we've always thought of him as the Turner's horse. And uh, he's big odds for the class he is. He was a very good horse for Simon Isaac in France. He was beaten in two photo finishes in their big grade ones as a four year old. He's got the class to shake him up, but that is a very strong renewal of that race, you know, with the mighty Potter and everything in it. It is a very strong renewal, but I, it, he wouldn't be a total surprise if he popped up at big odds. All right. Call me Lord in the Potemps. Your son Ben's going to ride him? No, no, no. He's in the, he's, the Coral Cup. He's going to run the Coral Cup. Yeah, Ben might. Yeah, the plans that Ben would ride him, he's gotten well with him during the season. All right. And Zambella, the best of the Brits? Yeah, in the mayor's chase, she's running that race the last two years. She fell going quite well two years ago. She was fourth in it last year. It seems a stronger renewal, probably deeper renewal, sorry, uh, this year. But she's the best of the British mayors, I would say. And if she could nick a fourth like she did last year, I'd be very happy with that. She's right. big odds, 20 to 1. All right, who gets the blood pumping the most out of all of these? El Fabiolo, for sure. That's that's the, you know, he's 17 hands, monster of a thing. Um, no, he, he's, the, he's the one that... You know, he, he's the one. Yeah, I mean, if this, you know, Footpad was brilliant in his arcle, and he got the blood pumping, and that, and this horse might be in that sort of ilk. All right, thank you to Anthony Bromley, to Danny Mullins, and to Darrow Lachlan earlier in the program. This has been, I think, on record the longest edition of this podcast. I promise you, I am not setting a precedent here. We will go back to regular length, but I wanted to uh, make uh, make an exception for the interview with Dara today and obviously we've been giving you slightly longer interviews this week with the with the leading players for the Cheltenham Festival and going through quite a lot of their their runners uh, he was pretty unequivocal there Anthony Bromley uh, Lydia about about El Fabiolo being the horse that gets his his blood pumping um and he described him as a big monster of a horse and you know the way he was talking about him it's sort of in if, if you like the horse that won't have diminished your confidence Absolutely not. He's got the best form coming into the Arkle. Uh, I think the Arkle will probably, was, I hope it will, result in better form. You've got Dysart Dynamo there to assume it's going to be, to ensure it's going to be a strong pace, we think. Uh, you know, it does depend to some degree, of course, on Danny Mullins, who we heard from earlier. Um, so, yeah, El Fabiano's got a really strong chance. I was interested that Hunter's Yard is going for the county hurdle. I was kind of expecting it. But it, and I, it's good to have that finally confirmed. And I would, I personally would disagree with, I mean, the vibe I was getting from Anthony anyway was that he was wondering about whether Ampere Pass was, it was uh, in the right race, the Ballymore, because he hadn't tried the trip before. I mean, quite often that the Ballymore can be a full Suman race that actually relies on speed. And I think he is absolutely perfect for the Ballymore he jumps superbly he's got a turn of foot I think he probably would stay or would certainly stay as much as he needs to for the Ballymore so um, I'm I'm pretty confident that that horse will run well and he he again if we could talk about the yak from the preview circuit um suddenly he seems to be the horse that the Mullins team are apparently focusing on and saying you know is is there a really strong candidate, um, not to dismiss Vassal Vega, but they all seem to have branded on, on Pere Pass, and he very much is the uh, wise guy horse. Yeah, though not that wise at the, <laughs> the current price. No, no, true, true, true. <laughs> right, I think we've got we've given you a lot this week. Um, do go back and spin through them, uh, and you're going to get all the all the choicest nuggets in um, Charlotte's show tonight as well, which will come out after nine o'clock. Um, if you are short on a little time. Um, thank you for listening today. Lydia has some advice for you. Um, we're not really sure what's going to happen tomorrow re- regarding Sandown because there is an inspection uh, uh, because of a potential frost. So fingers crossed for that. Uh, what do you got for me? 
I'm sticking with today, actually. It's a horse I've actually got a tenth share in, which is Jupiter Express winning oh. in the six o'clock at Kempton over six furlongs. I think he's an improved horse uh, since his break. He came back and won two starts back at Chelmsford. Uh, he ran well last time in a race that didn't set up for him. This race, this apprentice handicap with Liam Wright on board for Nick Appleby, does look like he's going to be is going to be set up for him. So it's Jupiter Express in the six o'clock at Kempton today, Friday. Excellent. That was, of course, the horse that gave Asheen Murphy his comeback winner a couple of starts ago uh, since when there have been plenty more. Lydia, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We will be back with you, as I said, this evening and then again, of course, from Cheltenham on Monday. And on Monday, I get to be on the road to Cheltenham. <laughs> you do. I you guess. do. You are every, every year. We, um, we're looking forward to you joining us. Yeah, I get, I get to uh, get out and about on Monday morning, which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, We will see you every day next week. But for now, that was Friday, the 10th of March. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.